Hello, this is the Screen Watching Podcast. Today, a podcast in five parts. First, we do reviews. We look at Masters of the Air and Color Purple. Second part, we look at Intermission. We take a look at the Oscars. Third part, we do more reviews. In the Know, an NPR Ira Glass-inspired TV comedy and Anatomy of a Fall. And in the fourth and fifth parts, This Week in History and The Birthday Quiz. Folks, this is Screen Watching. Stay with us, won't you? This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Hey folks, this is Screen Watching. It's our weekly discussion about all things TV and televisual. That's the opening I used to use for a podcast that I did about 10 years ago. Gosh, shake out that brain worm. Good uh, memories. Yeah, Simon Foster, uh, you're my co-host. Uh, just yeah. to explain my opening intro, this week there is this very odd, strange animated comedy from the mind of, um, well, I think there's a few different minds involved. Uh, mm-hmm. Mike Judge is in there, uh, that gentleman Quality. who played Gabe yep. in The Office that I can never quite remember the name of. Uh, you know, that guy, he's in Silicon Valley and he's in everything. Uh, I'm just um, doing a quick Google. Uh, I'm talking about, obviously, Zachary Woods. Okay. You know, look at his face and he'd be like, oh, that guy who's in every comedy. He did the famous, he does the famous, I, I learned karate online, the clip from The Office where they're all breaking up laughing. That's him, isn't it? <laughs> I can't remember, but like that sounds oh, like very a Zach Woods bit. Yeah. Yep. But you know, every comedy from like the last 15 years, Zach Woods has been seen somewhere in the background of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I've got this really sort of strange half hour comedy, which is a, I'm not going to say it's a loving homage, because I don't think it's actually that loving. It's definitely a knowing homage to the world of NPR and public radio and the types oh, of the personalities involved in it. And so that was what I was doing in the opening. It was like the oh, Ari Glass no. opening to This American Life. I thought you'd had a stroke. I thought you'd fallen asleep or something. I thought it's, it's, um, it was very, very monotone in its presentation, which is so NPR. Well done. Hello, everyone. Simon Foster here from your Screen Watching Podcast. Um, yeah, beautifully done. Beautiful voice control and your intonations were exactly where they needed to be. So how are you, Dan Barrett? Lots of breathing exercise and kale. <laughs> Uh, look, yeah, doing fine. Uh, look, it, it's it's quite a week. Simon, I just want to dive right in because we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about, including, yep. I'm not even going to spoil. Let's just dive right in. Let's do some reviews, Simon. Let's dive, baby. It stinks. The big title of this week, Simon, I think is the brand new Apple TV Plus drama. It's called Masters of the Air. So you're right, mate? A girl with riding too is hard to find. Not if you know where to look. I'll miss you every second. Major Egan. You were the first pilot assigned to the 100th. Me and Buck Levin. You are in charge of 35 planes and 350 air crewmen. Okay, Simon. Top five characters from TV and film named Buck. In order. Number one, Buck from Boogie Nights. Rogers. Number two. Oh, wow, really? Okay. Yes. This is my list, Simon. Jesus. Number two. Go Buck for from it. Married with Children. Number three. Midnight Cowboy. Buck, yep. Buck from Kill Bill. Number four. The aforementioned Buck Rogers. Number five. Captain America's sidekick, Bucky Barnes. That is Beaver. the Bucky top Beaver. five. That is the top five Bucks from film and television. 
I note that Master of the Masters of the Air, which I want to call Master of the Universe, but that is a different program. <laughs> Masters of the Air has two different characters named Buck. I can assure you that neither of those characters are anywhere near that top five. There are many other mm. Bucks, both notable and not notable, who well and truly sit before these Bucks because neither of these characters are actual characters. And this is my problem with a little TV program called Masters of the Air. Uh, little? Broadly, this is a program... This is a program with um, aspirations to continue on with what they did with Band of Brothers, which, uh, what did that come out? 2000, 2001. That was absolutely the real kickoff of the premium TV HBO era. We talk about things like The Sopranos, but The Sopranos was just a, we're going to put out a TV show that happens to be high quality and really kicked off. Band of Brothers was a thing where Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg get together and they're like, let's get an obscene amount of money from HBO. Let's go out there and really produce just this fucking amazing, expensive World War II extravaganza. Uh, it was very much sort of a follow-on from a um, space series that they'd done a couple of years prior. But the difference and, between and that the Saving Private Ryan era as well. That was that that era of well, no, 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 but, well, no, no, but it's but it's. But from a TV series, it follows on from what they'd done a couple of years prior with a, um, you know, America's Exploration into Space drama. But that was kind of a more of a mix of um, documentary as well as, um, you know, uh, recreations. This was a pure dramatic account. Um, and you're right, it sort of followed around from Saving Private Ryan. That's clearly where the in interest in doing World War II very specifically came from and where that passion was for Spielberg and Hanks. Uh, a couple of years later, off the back of the huge success of Band of Brothers, they did a far less successful uh, version of the Pacific, which looked at, um, obviously, the uh, military activity happening around the Pacific area. Um, and then this is their third sort of swing at it. So it's the same producer who's kind of run uh, all three programs. Uh, and this one's called Masters of the Air. I was really looking forward to this one. Uh, as opposed to the previous two, this is an Apple TV joint as opposed to HBO. Uh, but I was looking mm -hmm. forward to this one because, uh, like, it just kind of looked incredible. And I kind of liked the idea of getting into the skies and seeing World War II from that perspective. And that's all really, really cool, except it turns out to be much more the Pacific than Band of Brothers in that I just don't <laughs> think... Look, it's, it's not dramatically inert because that's not the case at all, but it's very much a dramatic, let's play the hits. And when the hits are pretty much just following off every single movie we've seen with military flyboys, but told with really unengaging characters that don't really have much in the way of a personality beyond one's named Buck and he's kind of more of a serious guy. And then the other guy is also a Buck and he's kind of more of a slightly wacky but not really that wacky kind of a guy like that's kind of all you've got to hang your hat on with this one uh look I, I don't even really know how much detail i need to go into it if you just sort of give that log line which is it's band of brothers but told from the perspective of guys flying with a nine-part drama series which is nowhere near as interesting to watch as two hours of memphis bell that's the series uh, uh, yes, look, it's, uh, you, you're not wrong. This very much reminded me of those old commando comic books that I read when I was a kid. It's that kind of representation <laughs> of what... I haven't thought about those in years, Simon. 
I used to I used to collect those. I had I had a a meter high pile of Commander comic books, and there was another one, another kind as well that I can't remember what they were called. But Commander was the, the one to go to, and they represented the most heroic, mm. the most um, idealized version of American military might that you'll you'll ever find. Um, whereas Band of Brothers, coming off the back of Saving Private Ryan was sort of steeped in a, a a new kind of realism that you see in World War II films. Masters of the Air certainly adopts that visually. The stuff up in the sky with the bombers and later in the series, the P-51 fighters and the dogfights between the, the Messerschmitts and the and the bombers is pretty incredible to watch. The, the experience of being inside the cockpit and and experience the bullet hits and the bomb drops and the flyboy talk is really very exciting. But you're right about the really sort of thin characterizations when it gets on the ground. This is very much a um, rose-colored glasses view of what it's like to be in the military. There are, there are sad moments, of course. People are lost. Uh, friends and family uh, 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 suffer through the, the deaths of loved ones, as you'd expect. But it never feels as real on the ground as it does up in the air. Um, and I think that's kind of the fault of maybe Spielberg's and Spielberg and Hanks trying to maintain that um, very all-American feel to this when even in the sh relatively short period of time since Band of Brothers came out and Saving Private Ryan, the way we look at US military might have shifted. And something like this <laughs> Rel feels Relatively very short period of time. Simon, it's been twenty-seven years since uh, twenty-seven years, Ryan. but it, but it's but it, yeah, but it's been from the end of World War Two to when Saving Private Ryan came out. We still had this kind of a glorified air about what it meant to to go to war and be a young man in battle. In the last twenty years, that has changed somewhat, certainly for the generation of people who are, are watching Apple TV. So this feels sort of at odds a little bit with with its maybe its targets audience or its or its locked in audience it's the people who are in their chairs at home watching this so i i look i liked it and i binged the whole series so i've, I've kind of seen it all the way through to the end and it, it wasn't without its dramatic moments and certainly the stuff in the sky is exciting but it feels a little bit of a different time to me yeah there's this uh emerging well i don't know if it's emerging it's definitely been around for a little bit uh it's an ongoing conversation you find online with people talking about dad tv and um, I even note that one of the exemplars of what they call dad TV, which are these sort of fairly, I'd say sort of uninspired action adventure TV dramas, although that's probably unfair to a couple of the shows that get labeled with dad TV tag, but things that kind of feel like the sort of dramas of yesterday, but have a sense of sort of masculinity around them. Uh, so Reacher is probably the key example of a show around at the moment. Uh, as I can't think of the guy's name is like Alan Richens, I think is the name of the actor who plays Reacher. Uh, he had an interview the other day where he's like, oh, the TV show I'm in is not dad TV, even though it's absolutely dad TV. Uh, I was watching Masters of the Air with that kind of in mind a little bit. And I don't know if this is necessarily what I'd brand as dad TV, but it's certainly dad TV adjacent. If you really sure. enjoy military dramas and, you know, if... 
even just hearing that there's a Band of Brothers type of TV series where guys are taking to the air and flying and having those sorts of, you know, serious conversations about sort of duty while also having that sort of air of, oh, the tragedy of this. They all seem like they're 19 years old. Like, how horrible is this? Mm. Like, if that sounds really appealing to you and you're salivating at the idea of watching that, like, you're absolutely going to enjoy this. But if you're coming at it thinking, I'm just looking for, like, the next quality drama, I think you're just going to find this a little bit flatter than you ideally would like. And that's definitely the perspective I probably came to it at. But if I was a bit more into the genre, I think I would probably lap this one up because production quality is amazing. They've certainly spent the money on it. And while watching it, I couldn't help but think about the fact that Apple TV are launching this in January of 2024. This is right before they're launching their new um, headset, the Apple Vision Pro. There's something I've been doing very quietly in the background, and I've been trying to find out a bit more information about this, but I'm not getting any replies back from the people at Apple about it. Uh, With the actual filming of the format for the Apple Vision Pro, uh, they've got these new cameras which record a 180-degree wide-frame capture of everything. And so Mm. my understanding, and this is what I'm trying to get a bit more um, grounding on, is that they've actually quietly been filming a lot of their TV programs on Apple TV to be able to handle this much bigger wide format. I would absolutely assume that if this is true, they are doing this, that Master of the Air was absolutely something filmed that way. And I'd very much like to see what this looks like on an Apple Vision Pro, because I think it would be spectacular to be immersed by all of this but on the TV with the many distractions that my lounge room has to offer on my 16 by nine screen, like it looked pretty good, but like it wasn't maybe as immersive as what this possibly could be. Okay. Masters of the Air is on Apple TV as we speak. I guess the other thing we buried the lead here a little bit is that it's Austin Butler's follow up to uh, his role in Elvis, um, which strikes me as a little odd because he's, I mean, he plays the square-jawed all-American hero exactly as he exactly as he's asked to do in this. Um, but it's not a, a huge acting stretch for for someone of his um, capabilities and physical attributes. So certainly, the Austin Butler fans will enjoy oh, look, it. That's... But, um... Yeah, look, I mean, that's yeah. the case for all the actors in this. Like Barry Keegan starts cropping up in the show. You know, you, you do find there's some notable young actors that sort of come through. Uh, oh, I sure. haven't seen. Elvis, because I've got a real aversion to watching anything Baz Luhrmann created. I just can't do it. Uh, as much as I would love to watch a movie about Elvis, uh, and Priscilla is certainly on my mind as well right now, and I haven't gotten to see that yet. But as an Elvis guy, like I definitely would like to check that out. But I was watching Masters of the Air, and I was like, who is this guy? He seems vaguely familiar, and I've never seen him in anything <laughs> before, and this didn't really sort of make me feel as though I need to desperately get out to see the next Austin Butler join. But like, he's fine. June part two is what he's next in, and he's fairly unrecognisable in that by all accounts. So So Masters of the Air is on Apple TV as we speak. Uh, I got off to the movies. The year is 1984. No, it's not. Wait a minute. The year is 2024, and it's another version of The Colour Purple. Today, our teacher taught us about a place called Africa. She say our mamas come from Queens over there. That means that we? Royalty. (laughs) <laughs> I have 
And this is going to sound a bit silly or a bit strange coming from a middle-aged white guy in Sydney, Australia, but I've got this strange relationship with the colour purple. I want to say I read Alice Walker's book in high school, but I've spoken to people I went to high school with and they said, no, no, we never did that. So maybe I just read it as sort of in preparation for Spielberg's 1984 film. Beautiful book, incredible story, very moving, um, extraordinarily dark and powerful in parts. Um, Dan, at the back of the room there with your hand up. Yes, can I, what would you want to say? I didn't know you could read. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been reading for, yeah. for many years now. Um, so just, just on the topic of reading, can I just sort of mention, uh, you did mention Commando, yes. which obviously has lots of pictures, so I assumed you were okay there. Uh, the Commando comics that you discussed are actually British-produced comics and yes. they're still in production. Uh, as of December oh, yeah. 2023, they've made 5,710 of them. Uh, I believe it. I must have had the first 3,000 yeah. or so. I had, I had heaps. Um, so, get back to I, the colour purple. I reckon if you can still find a new... Well, I was going to say, if you can still find a news agency, I know they still sell them. Like, you know, you just have to find yeah, a news agency for do. this to be possible, though. Yeah, sorry, go on. Um... So then I went to then I went into Spielberg's. Now the interesting thing with Spielberg's film was that I was at a point in Spielberg's life where everything was Raiders of the Lost Ark and everything with Jaws and E.T. and he all these very high fanciful sort of films. So when he tried to go super serious with the color purple, I had a bit of an aversion to it. Tried to have a bit of reaction to it. Um, so what I I saw it once at the movies. That was it. Um, so what I did prior to seeing this new version of The Colour Purple, a musical, mind you, and I know how much you love musicals, I went back and watched The Colour Purple the morning of the day that I saw the new Colour Purple. Now, the Spielberg version um, still has all the issues with it that I remember at the time. Um, he couldn't help himself being wildly sentimental in parts. It was shot by wow. the, the director of photography that he used on E.T., wow. so it's got that glow, that sort of very almost Disney-like glow to it. But having watched the film the morning of, of, of seeing this new one, I realised that it also had this beautiful old-school cinematic quality to it, which is lacking in the new version. It also had some the kind of casting that is inspired um, Whoopi Goldberg in the lead role of Seeley. While certainly having movie star charisma, she's meant to look as she's described in the film, ugly and awkward and strange, and she does look like that. She's cast to look like that. In the new version, Fantasia Barone plays the lead character. She's one of the most beautiful women to ever step in front of a camera, and it's doesn't it detracts from who Celie is and Celie's actual rise out of the the the, the un, from underneath the thumb of, of Mister, who's played by Coleman Domingo in this one, who's everywhere at the moment. Um, so I found a newfound respect for the Spielberg version in hindsight. In watching the new version, I realised what an awkward mix of material this is in terms of it being a story set um, back in a, in a very tough time in American history in a, in a, a black family that's ruled over by a vicious patriarch um, who about a young woman who sort of finds her hope and her her sort of trajectory in life through a, a, a gay relationship, um, all of which is barely touched on in, in both the Spielberg version and this new version. Um, and then you've got the added mix of songs, and it seems like such a strange concoction when you add all these dark moments in American history and all these very um, potent and powerful themes with 
not very good music. The songs themselves, or maybe even the staging of the songs themselves, feels very underdone. Um, so this is a movie that I know the story and Alice Walker's novel and Spielberg's film mean a great deal to a great many people. Um, but this feels like a little bit of that thing that I hate the most, a grab at IP um, and, a, and a sort of manufacturing of IP that doesn't feel real, that doesn't feel genuine. Um, and that's a little bit sad because it does have some fine performances in it. Um, but in every other respect, I find this one a, 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 an odd sort of a misfire. Um, I don't know how it played on stage. It won Tony Award, so it must have played better than this. I was at the cinema a couple of nights ago. Uh, we'll talk about what mm. I was watching in just a moment. But in the, um, you know, prior, we saw lots of trailers. The Mean Girls trailer came up. Um, my wife was sitting next to me who didn't realize that there was a Mean Girls uh, movie currently playing in cinemas. And she was just confused and befuddled by what she was seeing on the screen. And she's like, why have they remade that? And I'm like, well, it's not a remake of the movie. It's an adaptation of the Broadway musical. And she yes. just said the thing, which I think applies to the color purple, uh, that certainly applies to Mean Girls, which is why do I want to watch a movie adaptation of a musical remake of a movie that I saw 20 years ago? Like it's all of that. It just seems baffling. All of that's valid. Um, I take them on a project by project basis. There have been some musicals based on recent films that have worked. None come to mind, and, and I haven't seen the Mean Girls movie yet. And by all accounts, I was going to say, can, sorry, can you actually name one? <laughs> um, no. Not off the top of my mm. head. I probably should be able to. I wish I hadn't said that until I had some evidence of it. But, but like, I mean, I, I like I like a musical, I so I'll give a musical a go. Yeah. But look, I did find while I was watching the trailer, I was like, well, what are they actually selling here? Because yeah. obviously in this trailer, in the Colour Purple, in the Wonka trailer, none of them actually advertise Wonka. that they're musicals. And so That's true. Yeah, but Wonka is not an adaptation directly of a recent no. movie. It's, you know, using the same IP as all these other films. Like, it's not quite the same. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, none of them were advertising that they're musicals. But without knowing that it's a musical, I sat there watching this trailer thinking, well, why would I go and watch this instead of watching the movie that looks exactly the same, which I know and love, which is just at home and available on, you know, probably a bunch of streaming services around the place. Like, it just didn't mm. seem as though they were selling me a compelling reason why I'd want to see the new version. Okay. Yeah, and if the right. trailer had shown that it was a musical a version of it. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if the, the trailer showed that it was a musical ago. version of it, then that's a selling point. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and you made the point a couple of weeks ago in that they probably commissioned these films when musicals were kind of hot and then West Side Story came along and it wasn't so hot. Um, ironically... Both Color Purple, certainly in its first couple of weeks, and Mean Girls, very much so, right at the moment, are doing very well at the box office. So maybe musicals oh. and Walker, of course, are coming back around. So. No, no, no. Simon, I think word of mouth has been a big problem for Mean Girls because it had a very good opening weekend, but mm. second weekend, dramatic like collapse. Oh, it's holding its own in the U. I don't know about here in Australia. I haven't seen the figures here in Australia, but I know in the US it's holding its own. Color Purple opened very big, but then had a a fairly steep decline in its second week. So, but what, there's no doubting that Wonka's a, a legitimate hit everywhere. So, um, 
like I said, Color Purple seems like an odd mix of material to me that, that the film itself never quite overcomes. So, um, which will be no sort of, you know, disencouragement. Is that a word? Disincentive for people who love this this story. And I and I love the story. I, the, I remember reading the book um, vividly and, and um, on second viewing being quite enamoured by Spielberg's film. But... Uh, but this one seems odd to me. Colour Purple is in pretty wide release in cinemas as we speak. Now, just because I really just don't care for statements which aren't accurate, uh, Mean Girls saw a 71% drop the second week in the US. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, that's quite steep. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Simon Foster, I think this is probably the time in the podcast we go to a intermission... Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. Now, nothing fills me with more dread than when Dan Barrett texts me and says, I've got a hot take on something. I'll tell you about it during the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is what you did last week when I said, I want to have a little bit of a talk about the Oscars. And you immediately agreed, which made me concerned because I know how much you hate award shows in general. Um, and then you said, I've got a pretty hot take on it. And I thought, oh, my God, here we go. So what we thought we'd do with the Oscar nominations out, there's been a lot of to and fro back and forth already. I think those that watch screen watching will have been all over the, or listen to screen watching will be all over the uh, the Barbie snubs, uh, the Barbie surprises. Um the controversies and the uh, the general sort of uh, banter about what's uh, what's happened with the Oscar nominations. But Dan's got a hot take, um, and I've got some views myself. So who wants to kick this thing off, baby? Oh, look, uh, I mean, look, I even had the conversation with you on the text, which is don't expect it to be like that hot a take. It was really just an interesting thought I wanted to throw in. But we'll have that chat a little bit later in. Uh, I guess maybe sort of a top-level thing. And you did express that you want us to be able to talk about everything you want us to talk about before I gave a rant, and suddenly you're giving me the floor. But look, maybe the the way I'd just like to sort of frame this is I did say to you a couple of weeks ago on this here very podcast – talking about Mm. both the TV shows and movies of the last year. I just think that broadly, it was a pretty good year for movies, a pretty good year for TV. Like it was just across the board, there were just a lot of really good titles along the way. What I found interesting looking at the Academy Awards here, and this may just be a um, flow on effect from the fact that we had these two films that got released mid-year that did absolute sort of massive blockbuster business that were both award contenders in both Barbie and um, Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I can't remember, did you so see Oppenheimer? Sorry, one... I, I, did, I don't come Did you no, ever see Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer? Yep, okay. Yeah, look, I, I quite liked it. I didn't love it. Uh, it certainly isn't in my top 10 films of the year, and I think it was in my top 20 films of the year, to be completely honest. But like, I certainly understand why people liked it. It just wasn't something that I necessarily connected into um, too deeply. But it just kind of feels as though those films are propelling a bit more accessibility to the Academy Awards than we've seen in some time. Uh, but mm. once you get past those two films, it does feel as though 
there's maybe the same problem that I think's maybe plagued the Oscars a fair bit and the snub of Barbie sort of facts this, this conversation a bit, which is that Academy voters tend to favour one type of film that has a Academy Award sort of sheen to it, a bit of a vibe. And often that means not a comedy, but if it is a comedy, it's a very specific type of a comedy like The Holdovers, uh, whereas mm-hmm. something like Barbie, which, look, I haven't seen Barbie. I've got my issues with the Barbie IP, which is a massive block of me to ever watch this film. But it does seem from everything I understand about it to be a very sort of bold vision as well as, you know, superbly directed. And the idea that uh, Greta Gerwig, a director who I do have a lot of time for generally, uh, has made a film that's Academy Award worthy. Like I certainly buy into that being quite likely. But when I think about does a broad comedy like that, even if it has a strong artistic um, aspiration, meet the idea of what I perceive to be a Oscar movie? And I think that what I perceive to be an Oscar movie is generally the way that a lot of Oscar voters probably see the same thing. And I'm not sure it necessarily falls into the category. And then you look at the films that did get the best director category and like they all are very much Oscar movies. And so I think that's just where Barbie's fallen down. It just doesn't fill the category. I, yeah, I I don't disagree with that. I I, I agree that um, that yes, the the perception that the Oscars was, was going to go was going to try to be a bit more mainstream in those years when they blew out their nominations to to ten in the best picture thing to accommodate the Batman's and the and the the, the big blockbusters of the day to try to win over the audience. I think was has kind of fallen a little bit by the wayside. There were warning shots last year when uh, Tom Cruise got an Oscar nomination as a producer of Maverick, Top Gun Maverick, but was overlooked in the lead uh, when a lot of people thought that should have been part of the reward he got for for bringing people back to the cinema, for making this billion-dollar blockbuster. And there's a bit of a feeling about that with with Barbie as well. But you know what the reward for a blockbuster is? You know what the reward for a blockbuster is? It's the very fancy new house that you're able to purchase by having a billion-dollar movie. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah, for sure. But the the point being that the that to bring viewers back to the to the Oscars, um, we, we would you know favor those sort of movies. So yeah, I think it's it's a shame they didn't get nominated. I don't think it's the the worst snub of the. Uh, for the reasons that you point out, I, I don't think it's the worst snub of the of the night. There are others in that mix. Interesting that your man Alexander Payne got overlooked for the holdovers. When I think oh, things that were things like Alexander Payne being overlooked for the holdovers come about because it was such like you point out such a good year for cinema. Um, a lot of things that can be sort of in the mix and and be chosen from. Great that. Justine Trier for Anatomy of Four was recognised um, and, that uh, you know, a lot of good directors were, were in that mix. But for Alexander Payne to mix out for The Holdovers, which is a film that I'm not overly enthused about, um, I think that Paul Giamatti's performance is a bit of that, that sort of one-note, smart-aleck, academic-type thing has been done before and done better. And I would have preferred to have seen Nicolas Cage or your other man, Joaquin Phoenix, in there for, for either Bo is Afraid, not for... Not for Napoleon, but um, yeah. So there's certainly a, a, a heady mix that, that I know that you weren't a fan of her performance for whatever reasons. But Greta Lee for Best Actress was a was a, I think a major snub um, in a year when it's it's really busy. And I would have loved to have seen well, my my concern. My concern with Greta Lee largely comes down to the fact that she sucks. 
Okay. All right. Very. It's very insightful commentary there from Dan Barrett. Um, I, Peaches, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen Peaches by Jack Black, the song from Super Mario Brothers. I cert, There wasn't a moment in cinema this year where a film was allowed to go just that little bit left of centre, a little bit off track of the way that Super Mario Brothers was when Peaches was sung. And I was so grateful that this frantic animated movie was given a bit of room to breathe by this this very funny song. And I can you imagine an Oscar night where they bring Ryan Gosling off stage dressed as Ken, having done his song, his Oscar-nominated song, and then bring on Jack Black to do Peaches. It would have been such a crowd-pleasing, such a fun moment, but it's not to be, unfortunately. So, And there's a lot of great movies that weren't nominated this year, Most, I guess most notably Saltburn. There was such a tangible talking um, points and, 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 and momentum for Saltburn leading into this, you know, certainly suggesting it was on Oscar's radar, if nothing else. Um, it could have got a whole lot of nominations and ended up not getting any. So, what you don't think? You don't think Saltburn was in the mix? Um, look, I think sort of pre-release there was a bit of buzz suggesting it might be, but you know, I think once people actually saw the movie and realised it was just a bit slight, I don't think it was ever really a contender. Okay, I disagree. I think, I, and I think other things like All of Us Strangers. I think the Iron Claw. Zach Efron can count himself unlucky. Um, it's strange that Wes Anderson got a short film nomination, but that everything about Asteroid City was missed out because I thought Asteroid City was a terrific film. Yeah, see, I didn't care for Asteroid City at all. I think that the um, Henry Sugar short film he did, um, certainly, I, I think it was very good. I was surprised to see it nominated, though, only because I really saw that as a TV series that was gussied up as short films. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I want to put a little bit of a, a call out there for Rachel McAdams. She starred in a movie called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which was an adaptation of the beloved Judy Bloom young adult literary novel from, from way, way back when. Um, she should have been in the mix with a supporting actress nomination. But as you point out, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is certainly not the sort of film that the, the uh, voting body would look to, to to find a nomination. So I think she's missed out. But anyway, I do. I am working up to your hot take. I'm very keen to hear um, what you've got to say about the Oscars. Okay, so here's, here's my quote-unquote hot take. So <laughs> I've talked about this a few times over the last couple of years. So my general issue with the Academy Awards is that for the last 20 years, the cultural conversation has shifted um, away from movies necessarily being the focal point of cultural conversation. This year is an aberration, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but I kind of feel that it's changed a little bit. And the reason why it's changed is just because there's been that bleed with TV and movies. So over the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of um, what you'd call sort of movie actors moving into doing TV shows. TV actors have become stars of movies. Uh, you find out the production quality of a whole bunch of TV shows is just dramatically higher across the board. Uh, the sophistication of TV sort of en masse has just, you know, increased. It used to be that every year there'd be like three or four shows that are kind of outliers. Now you can turn on the most generic TV program and it looks amazing with really strong performances. And uh, like it's TV is just sort of in a better place um, than it used to be. Uh, the sophistication's there, but then the same thing is kind of in reverse in movies in that 
we've found there's like a TVification uh, of a lot of the big Hollywood movies that we're seeing. So a lot of like part twos and part threes and, you know, you reach the end of a movie realizing you got to come back in 18 months to see the next film. Like it just kind of feels as though both forms are just bleeding into each other. So when I watch these award shows and it's certainly more noticeable with the Emmy awards than it is with the Academy awards. Okay. But it just kind of feels as though neither show really necessarily hits the mark anymore. Cause it's not quite where that cultural conversation is as consumers. We're moving backwards and forwards as an industry that moving backwards and forwards between the mediums. Okay. But it's not really recognizing that way. It just feels like it's so, um, ghetto is not really quite the right word because that's got a negative sort of connotation to it, but it's siloed is probably the way I sort of want to think about it. So it kind of feels like it's a siloed experience. Um, you notice this more with the Emmy Awards and particularly because the Emmy Awards have that category of best original movie. And then you watch, say, and I talked about this a few weeks back, uh, but like Weird, the Weird uh, Yankovic story, like why that was the best movie of the Emmy Awards like is baffling considering that, you know, you've also got, say, Maestro, being released here like via the Academy Awards as a nominated feature. And it's purely because Netflix see more prestige in an Oscar award than they do in an Emmy award. Anyway, Simon, this is kind of where I was thinking. So my big thought for the last few years is that um, both the, well, both academies probably need to really come to the party and maybe think, hey, look, as we do a televised award show, like each academy can represent their constituencies from film and TV, like that's fine. But as they're presenting a TV program to award this, like maybe the actual smart move would be that you have one award show, which is about um, scripted content, and the other award show then becomes about documentary and um, nonfiction. So TV-wise, you get all your docu-series, your reality shows, all of that alongside feature documentaries. It gives them a stronger platform. On the scripted side of things, it opens up the platform a little bit more where it's TV and film, but also you can sort of reward comedy in a little bit of a better way that way as well. So like, I kind of think there's a few wins to doing that. But here's kind of where my hot take was. And I was just kind of thinking about, uh, obviously, that's never going to happen. It's going to be that the Emmy Awards continue on, the Academy Awards continue on, and they both end up just being sort of increasingly feel a little bit irrelevant. This year, the Academy Awards feel more relevant than I've been in, I don't know, 20 years. And that's purely through having Oppenheimer's and um, Barbie and a couple of other films that have kind of performed well on Netflix and have sort of perpetrated. Uh, uh, penetrated the culture conversation a little bit more. So Poor Things is probably a good example of something which has kind of cut through, even though the actual box office for that's really not particularly high, as I realized the other day. Uh, but that's kind of a bit strange. But I kind of feel as though the smart move that Netflix could make is instead of chasing after an Oscar, and I'm sure they're going to keep on trying for another two or three years because they desperately want their Oscar, I feel the smartest thing that Netflix could do is to actually go after that original movie category at the Emmy Awards and just take complete ownership of it. If Maestro had been nominated, not as an Academy Award where it's not going to win, okay, but instead in that best original feature, suddenly Netflix have these big, amazing movies in the category where they rightfully should be. And then they could just own that category, own that for a couple of years. Suddenly you'll see all the other streamers fall into line where they want to try to take that original movie category. And you suddenly have a really vibrant, interesting movie category at the Emmy Awards. But then what's the impact on the Academy Awards if they do that? Because suddenly it sort of seems as though, well, there's other sort of prestigious awards that have exist there and people are actually actively after it. Like it just kind of leaves the Academy Awards sort of um, slightly neutered. Like there's, there's an impact that gets felt there. 
And I kind of think Netflix would be really smart doing that because in a couple of years' time, the broadcast rights for the Emmy Awards are up as well. If Netflix could start earning that category, in a few years' time, as they're trying to chase these big live events, like, get the rights to the Emmy Awards and bring that over to Netflix. Suddenly you have this award show which nominates and regularly awards Netflix programs, Netflix movies, which you can stream on Netflix. It just kind of feels like the natural place this is heading as we're starting to see the limiting of broadcast networks as well as having any role at all in these awards. Uh, interesting points. The first uh, probably thing that strikes me is that you're going to have to find, or, or Netflix or Amazon or Apple are going to have to find a filmmaker who's willing to be the entry point for that sort of campaigning, for that sort of award win. The example being, if Netflix have said, we're going to go all out, to, if, if, if they'd have gone to Bradley Cooper and said, Bradley, we're going to go all out to dominate the Emmys this year, or certainly this category of the Emmys, with Maestro, and it's going to be our prestige title, but it's not going to be Oscar valid and it's not going to go to cinemas. I don't know if Bradley Cooper would have said, yeah, well, I'm not going to go with Netflix because that is a that is a big leap you know to what? make. If they'd go to if, if they'd go to if they, if they went to Christopher Nolan and said, You can do whatever you want to do with Oppenheimer, here's all the money in the world, but we're gonna we're gonna use Oppenheimer to drive the narrative that this new award ceremony at the Emmys for best film is going to be ours and ours forever because these are the sort of movies we're making. I don't know if Christopher Nolan would have said, yeah, let's do that. You know what? Fair call on that, okay? Except what I'd probably say is that the only reason that Netflix are making Maestro is for that Academy Award. So the business imperative for them then is to chase the Academy Award. If they are like, well, no, we're not going to be chasing the Academy Award anymore. We want to own this category over here. We see a greater sort of business case for it. Then Bradley Cooper basically gets told, hey, look, you know, we're not going to fund your movie. If you want to come and make the movie, come over to us. They can just take that money, invest it elsewhere. There are enough actors who are moving backwards and forwards between both mediums. Okay, sorry, actors as well as directors and other talent involved. Okay, that I think that they are going to be able to attract some filmmakers. Um, I don't think they're going to be successful out of the gate, but also Netflix haven't been successful at the Academy Awards either. Like, the only reason they're making these big prestigious plays is for Academy Awards. How many Academy Awards do Netflix have so far? Which is, like, not for Best Picture. The answer is none. Like, they haven't gotten across the board with sure. that. It's a failing strategy for them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's lots of different paths for me for us to like, go down with this, and there's just the, there's just going to be a lot of these movies not being made. If you take it back about two years, so Maestro is not the great example here, only because Bradley Cooper's never going to go for that. But think about, say, like a David Fincher. Okay, he had his movie Mank. Like Fincher is all in on that Netflix experience. If they said to Fincher, "Look, we're going to try to own that Emmy category with the best original film and try to make that category actually prestigious now," and you're just a filmmaker to be able to do that for us, I think Fincher absolutely would go on for that. I think there's enough filmmakers who see the it's value an interesting... in being on a home platform. Yeah, it's it's an interesting argument to be had because a lot of the um, prestige titles that that Netflix have enjoyed Oscar nomination success with have been acquisitions. I'm trying to think of, it, but, and by that I mean Maestro or Roma or Mank or something goes to the festival circuit as, a, as a, an independent production or a, and, is, and is then picked up by Netflix 
which then decide whether they're going to put it straight to streaming or whether they're going to give it a cinema run to qualify for the Oscars. So, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting debate. Um, to go right back to the beginning of what you said, I, I don't necessarily agree with all that, that TV and film are blurring. It's hard in a year when we've seen oh. such amazing, unique visions as as past lives and and Bo is afraid and dream scenario and all these sort of really unusual, challenging, imaginative films. Um, there's still a role for those to play as just cinema titles. But but I but I look, I do take your point. I'm not going yeah, to get I'm, into one of our I'm, heated I'm discussions t- about that because I see a lot I'm, of value talking, in what you're saying. I'm not talking about cinema though. I'm talking about a broadcast presentation of an award show. If you're going to broadcast mm. that on television, it should be as TV friendly as possible. And that's the way I think sure. to make that award show more palatable and more relevant to an audience. Good point. A surprisingly level-headed and interesting uh, intermission segment, not usually something we're good at. Well done, Dan. <laughs> I, I don't know we were good at it, but, right. yeah. But sorry, just sorry, just as a thought, like we, we were talking this yeah. year about, no, just then, about Maestro being the case, but if Netflix had acquired Society of the Snow, which they had, okay, mm. uh, like why not drop that as like an original movie? Like, you know, I don't think that J.A. Sure. Uh, it's not Bagoya. Bayona. I surname of the... Um, Bayona. Bayona. Uh, like, you know, he's obviously a man of cinema, but at the same time, like, you know, you've acquired the film. Like, maybe it's with the idea that you're going to drop that into, like, the Emmy race. Like, I, I don't think... Yeah, but that's that another... But that's a different... That we do with Maestro. That's a, that's a different kettle of fish altogether because it's a... He's a major filmmaker in his homeland, so Netflix would have to acquire that and then deny him or the film a potential cinema run in in Spain or wherever the filmmaker is from. Um, no, no, but but you're not, otherwise, you're not otherwise denying we're looking at this from a very sort of American centric. Yeah, but like mm. it doesn't matter if it's played in cinemas in Spain or not. Like all you need to do is play in a couple of theaters in the US to to qualify for. Academy Awards, like if they just want to chase it in terms of like a streaming release, like they don't need to worry about like a theatrical release and whatever they do in Spain has no real impact. Like that's, yeah, that's nothing. Like it doesn't, about Spain. If we have any Spanish listeners, like it doesn't impact on your emails to screenwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. Um, yes, no, exactly right. No, no, all, all is true. All is but true. Like There's a wide, has no impact there. Yeah. It's fascinating to see where this is all going to end up in 20 years' time, what the Oscars, the Emmys, the award landscape looks like, because I don't, I oh, don't disagree can... that there's something that's very old-fashioned about about the award ceremony and the, the celebrating of stardom and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know where the next generation of viewers is going to come from but or, or how the award bodies are going to adapt to, to bring them on, because, yeah, things are changing. Well, the other thing as well, Simon, is that we're speaking as like old man TV and film people where you have to look at the rise of interactive storytelling by way of um, video games. And again, I'm going to mention that Apple Vision Pro, but like it kind of opens the door to uh, interactive VR experiences. In a couple of years time, like just the, even the idea that we're only celebrating TV and movies is going to feel really old hat and we're not looking at like other emerging platforms as part of this as well. Like it, it's all just sort of, um, it, it feels ridiculous that they're not sort of considering that TV movie bleed right now. We're not on the precipice of both being irrelevant in a couple of years time. Interesting call. That is controversial. Dan Barrett, as this intermission segment glides to a very civilized end what else have you been watching 
Uh, look, two things. So I opened with the NPR style um, intro earlier. Uh, the reason for that is yeah. that there's this brand new TV program called In The Know. Let's play a clip. Mm-hmm. Oh, Hugh Laurie, what should we do about Meghan Markle? I, I don't know that any action is required. Do you have the research for the first guest? This just says straight white woman. Tells you everything you need to know. Okay, so In the Know is a an episode's very in length from, uh, I've noticed uh, the first two episodes are like 22 and 26 uh, minutes. The premise of this one is basically uh, there's a guy named Lauren who hosts an NPR uh, TV program. He is a, you know, kale loving man who uh, spends okay let let me you mean literally like this is npr branded yeah or or it's all in fact oh it is no it's oh no no it's suddenly an npr radio station that they're at okay like it's not an npr tv program but you know it's an npr you know set tv show um, sure. it just dawned on me that they didn't create like a fake version of it. In the second episode, she's clearly standing in front of an NPR sign. But anyway, uh, in the, in the very first episode, you've got, um, Lauren is really concerned because there is, sorry, there's a homeless man who's taken up an occupancy in the radio station's bathrooms. Okay. His concern and the other lady who works sort of in like an administration producer role, uh, she and he are mostly concerned with have they got the rights, uh, nomenclature rights in terms of is he a um, unhoused individual or is he a person who is currently unhoused as opposed to the woman who inadvertently, who runs the station, who says that he's, he deserves as a man, yeah, even though they haven't engaged like with him as a person whatsoever. That is very much the viewpoint of this TV program. We're looking at Good. ridiculous people who may have the best of intentions as they engage in the world, but are so far removed from what's actually a meaningful human engagement that, you know, they are just ridiculous, silly people. And that is broadly what this program's doing. So you've got uh, four or five main cast members. You've got a guy named Lauren, who is the um, Ira Glass-inspired host. But, I mean, Ira Glass is certainly not as uh, ridiculous a human being as um, some of the people that are lampooning in this one. But visually, he very much has that Ira Glass sort of a look to him. Uh, you've got the woman who... Um, is the producer that I sort of mentioned there. Uh, She also has uh, some uh, neural divergency issues and is concerned the world doesn't really appreciate her plight as much. You've got the film critic who hasn't reviewed anything that is newer than two years old because he refuses to consider reviewing a movie until he has had the opportunity to see it once, see it a second time with his eyes closed, and then have two years to think about the experience of seeing the movie. Um, so it's like me and color purple. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so you've got that. Uh, there's a young intern who has no interest in radio whatsoever, but his parents are very wealthy and donated a large amount of money to the station. Uh, and then nice. you've got a, um, like audio engineer, uh, who's an African-American man who's a little bit older, who is a very sort of straight shooting person that can't believe the you know people that he's there with. And then also the station manager, who is a woman that her husband 
got murdered a couple of years ago, but she doesn't want to bother the police with finding an update as to how the case is going because they're probably busy with the St. Patrick's Parade. So these are your main characters. It's oh, okay. so this sounds funny, interesting. but the, the, like, if that's not enough of a gimmick, what this also is, is if you think about shows like Space Ghost Coast to Coast, where there's like silly animated stuff happening, but the focal point is also an interview with a real life celebrity. Okay. So in the first yeah. couple of episodes, you've got people like um, Jonathan Ness from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Nora Jones is in there. There's a model. I didn't know who she was, but she was actually surprisingly kind of funny. Uh, you just have like a raft of celebrities come this through. They're, they're not animated. So like, because we're yeah. in 2024, a lot of interviews these days happen over Zoom. So you see them on the computer um, talking backwards and forwards and uh, th they're given good lines. It's actually funny and engaging. Uh, in a way, it felt very much like David Tench. Oh, sorry, David Tench Tonight, if people remember that Australian show from a few years ago. Oh my God, uh, that's, just a, you've got that's like a this. cold blast from the past. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, uh, the show, it's got a good pedigree. Mike Judge is one of the co-creators. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, the officers um, gave himself Zach Woods uh, is the main voice of Lauren as well as one of the key creators on this. It's funny. It's just a very oh, solid half-hour comedy that not enough people are going to see. You can see it here streaming on Binge, but it's a Peacock original in U.S., Nice one. Um, I know you've got another one. Let me roll very quickly into my what else have you been watching. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about Anatomy of a Fall. Um, those of you who listen to the and watch the, the podcast know that I gave this my favourite film of the year and our best of 2023 wrap-up the other day. Um, it has featured very heavily in the Oscars. It's essentially a, a cop procedural courtroom drama at its core. Uh, a husband falls to his death out of a snow chalet window um the young boy may or may not have seen something um the wife may or may not have pushed him there is a uh, a whole series of investigative sort of hurdles that the police go through to find out what's going on so what you see is here is a a basic structure as told as a, as a procedural courtroom drama the brilliance of it is in the complexities with which the the characters are presented and, and the um, very potent and powerful ways in which the dark secrets of this family, a, a very, you know, standard well-to-do European family has have come unraveled and the pressures this put on the young boy. Um, Sandra Hule, Hule, I think it's pronounced, has um, got all the award acclaim. It's the young boy. God, I really should have checked his name before I started this because he is terrific in this film um milo Mercado grania plays daniel and he is terrific as the the young boy whose understanding of the crime and understanding of the dynamics of the family becomes so important to this to this film um they've actually gone pretty wide with the release of this because of all the acclaim it's got excuse me um which is going to open it up to a whole lot of people who may not have otherwise seen a movie like Anatomy of a Fall. A uh, bit of a long haul, 150-odd minutes, um, but it doesn't feel that. And when you get into the machinations of the, the psychology of this family, it's um, it makes for an absolutely compelling bit of cinema. So uh, Anatomy of a Fall is in cinemas now. Yeah, uh, I'm going to check this out on the weekend. I'm pretty keen to give it a look. 
Uh, something I caught a couple of days ago, Simon, was, uh, look, I like a bit of drama. I like to really make sure that I'm experiencing the greatest of art house, uh, sure. you know, cinema. So I did go and see the Sydney go. Sweeney, Glenn Powell, Will Gluck, rom-com, anyone but you. When you when said you, you went and saw this, this I thought it was, let me just say, I thought it was a, a some kind of blooper on my phone, something you'd pressed the wrong button and auto-corrected, somehow changed one movie title into this one. I couldn't believe that you went along and saw this um, fairly derided. I think it's at like 48% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm keen to hear not only your thoughts on the film, but what the hell you were doing there. Look, uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, it's been just a big week and my wife and I want to see a movie and our options for Tuesday night were anyone but you or Priscilla and I just wasn't in a Priscilla mood well sorry I wasn't I've certainly been in a mood for Priscilla I don't think I was in a Sophia Coppola mood it's a very specific Good mood you be in for that no you and made the right call just wasn't there um, but yeah, the idea of sitting in a uh, cinema, watching that, having some delicious pizza at the same time, like, you know, it, it ticked a couple of boxes. So look, when it saw that, uh, critic, critics have, yeah, I mean, it's uh, critics have been sort of, uh, fairly dismissive of it. You were just really just ripped into it. Uh, I, I don't think it's that bad. I think that it was a perfectly watchable, serviceable movie that had a few moments of levity. Uh, I don't think it's wholly successful as a rom-com. It's certainly not one of the greats in the genre. But there were two things I really wanted to sort of um, have a quick chat about, which was that, one, I found it actually really, really interesting that this wasn't a... I mean, it's obviously not a will-they-won't-they because it's a romantic comedy and obviously they will. Like, that's just kind of what this is. But usually the way this works is that you've got two characters who are coming at this absolutely just hating each other for, like, whatever reason, and then they get together at the end of the movie. Where this structures things... Not a very convincing Where reason. I thought it was actually a bit interesting. Yeah. No, but it's never a convincing reason. But in this, like, in no way is it convincing why they're so upset with each other. But at the same time, like, the actual film is grounded on the idea that these two characters fell in love right at the beginning and then through a misunderstanding um, led them to really just be hostile at each other because they kind of felt that the other person had been fairly dismissive at them. And that's actually fairly unique in a rom-com. Like it's not often the characters fall in love and then are angry at each other because of something like that. Usually they're just angry at each other because they just don't get along and then get to know each other. And then it's like, oh wait, no, it's been love all along. Um, Do you not think that too, one moment, do you not think that two mature people could have spoken with each other for about 90 seconds and fixed the problem (laughs) from that opening bit? Look, I don't think that it was set up well in this, but I just thought it was an interesting conceit, okay? Like, sure. we don't really see it sort of play out in that way. Um, I, I do think that the opening of this was, you know, just really terribly handled, uh, both in terms of that, but also from a cinematography standpoint, the opening scene of this has Sydney Sweeney, who is in whatever city, USA, I don't know they expressly say, although... I don't know, it's going to be New York or Chicago. They mentioned Fenway Park. Where's that? That's um, just New York, right? Chicago, okay. Uh, so they mentioned Fenway Park, so it's definitely Chicago that they're in. Uh, but they filmed it in Sydney. Like, they haven't filmed bits in Chicago and then gone to Australia for, like, the destination wedding um, holiday, which is, like, the setup for the entire film. The opening scene is Sydney Sweeney literally in Chicago, but walking down the stairs in Barangaroo. 
Okay, which is fine. Like, you know, this is movie magic. Like, it's all okay. Uh, If you don't know that there are the stairs in Barangaroo, then, you know, you're not going to really know one way or another. Okay, but the cinematography, the lighting of it, it looked like Australia from the outset. Like, nothing changes when they go from Chicago to Sydney. Like, it should have a slightly different change in lights or just something to indicate that they're in a different country, but that doesn't happen. And before we get, before we get emails from strange. American listeners, Fenway Park is actually in Boston. My apologies. I was in Boston. Okay. Yeah, yeah Chicago didn't quite feel right to me, and I knew it wasn't New York, but yeah. Mm. Yeah, so they're in Boston. Um, but yeah, like, it didn't look and feel like Boston. Instead, it was just kind of Barangaroo. It was just odd. Oh, and for people odd. outside of Sydney, Barangaroo is just an area along, uh, like, you know, it's maybe 15 oh, minutes, yeah. uh, you know, in getting away from, like, the Opera House. Like, it's pretty close to get, so it's just on the other side of the yeah, the harbour. It is. Yeah. They Did they lack mm. a little bit of chemistry together? I, I, I don't know if Romcom yeah. is her thing. He he sort of brought a bit of energy, which was fun, and when he did the strip on the top of the mountain, I thought it was stupid, but it was, you know, it, it's it's... They seemed a bit old to be acting the way they were acting. They should have been more sort of late teens. I, I, I get the feeling this was maybe written with a, a younger cast in mind, but it was cast by these mid-30 actors who should have known better than some of the scenes they pulled off or tried to pull off. Well, Sydney Sweeney, I think, is still in her early to mid-20s. Like, she's sort of age-appropriate she? for her. And the joke is that he is quite a bit older. Like, they refer to his age quite a number of times through the film so i think that that's fine mm. um, i do agree i think that they like chemistry and um i also know this was a um height of covid production so maybe there's just you know covid uh, protections taking place as part of the production which may have sort of helped contribute to that so i wouldn't want to be too what dismissive was... of that but it's certainly you, do, you don't feel that tension in the film uh, but also the like other, just the... thinking about sorry okay just, i know you're trying to say something Go simon on. but very quickly uh that yeah. That other rom-com that was filmed roughly at about the same time as that, I think, uh, was the um, George Clooney, um, Julia Roberts. Ticket to Paradise. Yep. Yeah. That had like a similar sort of distance between a lot of the characters. Like there was a similar vibe going on there. So Mm. maybe there's something. I don't know. Sorry, Simon. All right. So you managed to to get out and see anyone, but you're good for you getting out of the house and enjoying a night out with the missus. Pizza at the movies, really. I, I don't eat at the... I can't. Yeah, look, usually I'm very much against that, but I was really hungry and it was anything but you, anyone but you. So ultimately, what does it really matter? Theater pizza. You're a class act. I think what you need to understand is that one, there's two things you need to understand. One, the Blue Room Cinnabar actually does an amazingly good pizza, as I discovered. And the other Mm -hmm. thing you need to know is I just love cinema. Of course you do. Yeah, we can tell. Um... All right, let's get on with this. We were so close to being on our hour time then, but we kind of blew out. Let's move very quickly on to This Day in History. Tough week for This Day in History. Some odd ones this week. What was so unique? January 30, 1961, what was so unique about teen heartthrob Bobby Darren fronting his own primetime special on NBC on this day? Look, I'm really curious about this because I love Bobby Darren, but I, for the life of me, I can't figure out what's going on here. Bobby Darren and his friends was his first special with guests Bob Hope and Joni Summers. It was produced by Norman Lear. It was originally broadcast in colour, and what's so unique about it was that it's the he was the youngest ever host of his own primetime special. He was only 25 
a la Sydney Sweeney when this was made. So that's interesting. Uh, January 31, 1997, which instalment of the Final Fantasy video game, this is in your territory, is released to PlayStation by Square and Sony Computer Entertainment, 1997? I don't know why you have this bizarre understanding that I'm a gamer by any means because I play maybe one. I've seen all your three screens set up at home. You've got one of those gamer (laughs) chairs that you sit on. You've got the whole. You've got the the ultra fast internet, so you can talk to fellow gamers all around the world. You're you're a gamer guy. I mean, I've been on Twitch for the entire time I've been doing this podcast. I don't know what that means. Okay, Uh, so which installment of, of Final Fantasy came out in 1997? Sorry for being a contemporary man uh, and understanding contemporary issues. Uh, look, I don't know. Like, uh, I know Final Fantasy had been around for a few years prior to this, so it's not the first game. But I don't know. Like, it's certainly... 97 is pre them launching that Final Fantasy movie with their CG actress, I think. Like, maybe that's the answer. Maybe 1997 was when that film came out. Yeah, because I feel that was like early 2000s. No, yeah, it must have been because I was very v- much I was definitely online when that was the case. Okay, okay. so it was installment number seven. Well, that makes... I don't know what that means. Okay. Uh, I suddenly... February 3rd. I don't know why it's in the year history segment, but sure. <laughs> that petered out. Finally, this is much more relevant. February 1, 1893. Wow, that is relevant. In West Orange, New, Jer- New Jersey, a man named Thomas Edison officially declares what is open for business. February 1, 1893. Like it's TV related, but like obviously. What? In 18, 1893? Well, if, if this is a screen-watching podcast, Simon, should this not be screen culture? Yes, oh, I know what the answer is. It's definitely screen culture. It became open for business. Okay, okay what is the answer, Simon? Oh, is it, it'll be a company. The answer... Oh, it, maybe? Not, a, not even that Okay, specific. what is it, Simon? It was America's America's first motion picture studio. It was called the Black Maria. He had invented the motion picture camera, but then he realised he had nothing to show on it. So in December of 1892, they started the uh, production. They broke ground on the what would be known as the Black Maria Film Studios. And it was called the Black Maria because of its resemblance to a police patrol wagon, which was also apparently called the Black Maria. Gee, we're learning things on this podcast that we never knew. And are important to know. Yeah, sure. <sighs> Let's go with birthdays. <laughs> no, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. <laughs> okay, Simon. All right. For this. Now, there's a clue in this one. All these four, and you know, you love my clues. They definitely help you getting the get the answer. They share a connection with one of God's mightiest creatures. January 26, 1958, Ellen DeGeneres. January 27, 1924, India's first international star, Sabu. January 29, 1942, the beautiful Claudine Langey. And on January 29, 1880, the comedian W.C. Fields were born. Now, they all have kind of a connection around an animal. Let's, I'm going to put it out there. It's an animal. So what might it be? If you know who Sabu is, you're on, you're on the right path. 
Look, I don't know who Sabu is. Um, I know Ellen yeah. DeGeneres. Uh, the only thing I know about Claudine Longuet is she does a cover version of God Only Knows, which is pretty good. Uh, and WC yeah. Fields, like, I know who he is, but I can't say I can think of one of God's mightiest creatures in connection with him. I've got a vague recollection of Ellen DeGeneres appearing at some stage with a chimpanzee. And if Sabu, based on the picture here that's in your quiz, he kind of looks like maybe he was in, like, a Tarzan movie or something similar. Uh, I'm going to say they all so appeared racist. on screen with chimpanzees. Oh, see, you're on the right path. You're wrong. They all appeared, or they all have some connection to the great elephant, the mighty pachyderms of law. They all, let me run through, go, go backwards. January 29, W.C. Fields, he starred in a movie called Sally of the Sawdust, which was a 1925 American silent film, which featured an elephant, a cheeky pachyderm that picks pockets and fights off a gang of thugs. January 29, 1942, Claudine Langer, she co-starred opposite Peter Sellers in a little film called The Party, which featured an elephant covered in peace logos and hippie slogans. Sabu became famous. He became a global star, uh, having been discovered for the lead role in 1957's Elephant Boy, based on Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling's book, Tumai of the Elephants. And Ellen DeGeneres, she funds a foster elephant named Enkesha, who was found as a baby with her trunk caught in a snare. That's not funny. Don't laugh. The David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust took her in and looks after her, the elephant, not Ellen DeGeneres. And the answer this week is elephants. Yeah, sure. I'm really glad we did that quiz. <laughs> yeah, that was time well spent. All right, sign off, Dan Barrett. Screen watching Facebook at Screen Watching Podcast, Threads and YouTube at Screen Watching, or you can email us with all your favourite elephant memories, Screen Watching Podcast at gmail.com. Now, for elephants out there, because obviously they never forget, um, sorry, I literally just learned some TV news literally right now, and I'm very excited by oh, this. What? Break it, break it here on, pod on the podcast. Well, it's already been broken by the time that I edit this podcast, we are dare too old. But I literally just learned that if people remember the Netflix series The Diplomat, which was one of my shows of last year, part of the plot Kerry of that Russell? was that the Kerry Russell character, uh, who was is the titular international diplomat, uh, she was mm. being courted very quietly by uh, political forces within the US government because there was concern that the vice president would have to retire, well, would have to leave her post uh, sometime soon as part of a scandal that was sure. emerging. And so they were really feeling out this um, woman, well, feeling out their Carrie Russell character to find out does she want to become the vice president of the United States of America? Okay, so that's the plot of The Diplomat. Okay, anyway, the news that mm. just broke then, who's who they've cast as the vice president? Okay. <gasps> wow. Joining the show. Um, yes. Alison Janney. What? It's great casting, isn't it? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, she's a good actress, yeah. It's good casting. Like, it's, you know. It's fine. She's going to be amazing in the show. And yeah, it is a little bit safe, uh, but it also fits in with the fact that the showrunner of it is former West Wing as well. So it kind of feels like it's of a piece with that. But no, oh, yeah. so, I'm very excited yep. by this. That's good enough. Good anyway, actress. That'll make uh, it worth watching. That'll yep. Yeah. If you had signed up to the Always Be Watching newsletter uh, on Friday morning, you probably already know that story because I'm sure it was written. It hasn't been written yet, but it will be very shortly. <laughs> 
<laughs> Check that out. Alwaysbewatching.com. It's a newsletter that comes out five days a week. Uh, and then there's also a bonus uh, Always Be Streaming, which has a listing of all the brand new sh shows and movies that debuted on streaming that very week. How wonderful. And kudos to you, Dan Barrett, for picking several months ago that Jon Stewart was going to be part of the replacement team at uh, The Daily Show. It was announced this week that he'll be back for uh, the Monday show each week on uh, on the uh, current affairs satire. So um, you know your business. Uh, my stuff can be found at screen-space.net where there's all sorts of things going. The stars aligned, my friend, in your mind, which is really the most important thing. All right, Dan Barrett, we almost got it under an hour then. Actually, no, we didn't. We blew right out. All right, good for you. Thanks. Nice talking. Bye-bye. Peace out.